From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thank you so much for being with us today. It is February 6th and we are going to start off talking about auto theft and some very alarming numbers. They are all included in a recent study. It was done by the Equité Association. That is a not-for-profit national organization supporting Canadian property and casualty insurers. And in this report that has just been released, it shows that in Canada, a vehicle is now stolen every five minutes. So what exactly is happening here? Joining me to talk more about this is Sid Kingma, Director of Investigative Services for Western Canada with Equité Association. Sid, thank you so much for taking some time today. Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That number seems incredibly high that a vehicle is stolen every five minutes. And I know this report that takes a look at auto theft trends of 2021 to 2023 also finds the theft has increased in many parts of the, the country, maybe not as much here in Western Canada, but still up in many other places. So why are, are we seeing such a big increase? Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's really a question of supply and demand, and and you know the, there's a huge demand for um, our vehicles uh, overseas, and that's where we're seeing the bulk of them, uh, the ones being stolen, uh, ending up. And is is that a new trend that vehicles are being stolen and being put on ships or freighters or however they're being taken and shipped overseas? Yeah, it's not really a new trend. We've seen it for quite a number of years, but it's really exploded here in the last couple of years. We've seen, you know, just uh, exponentially getting worse and worse. So the trends show that, and again, from 2021 to 2023, looking at the various regions, really up in Ontario, up. But 48.2%, 57.9% up in Quebec, 5.5% in Western Canada. So a, a much uh, slower increase, but still an increase. Why is it, do you think, is it proximity to, to shipping the vehicles or why are we seeing some provinces being targeted more than others? Yeah, you're right. The uh, Really the epicenter of the crisis is in Ontario and Quebec right now. Um, and that's uh, really because of their proximity to the ports in Montreal and Halifax, because generally most of the vehicles are being shipped um, east to Africa and the Middle East. So those shipping lines um, travel out of those ports more frequently and, and it's easier to get across the ocean that way versus going out our western ports in, in British Columbia. In the report, it talks about how auto theft in Canada is viewed as a low-risk, high-reward opportunity uh, for criminals. Uh, is that because of a, a lack of port police or enforcement? Why is it considered such a, a low-risk criminal activity? Yeah, there's in, there's a, a number of factors that come into it. Um, resourcing at the ports, you know, across the country, um, it can be an issue, and then as well as um, you know, the, the just the criminal justice system, you know, it's it's overwhelmed and all the numbers that are going there. Um, so it's not just one thing that's happening. It's a bunch of factors happening all at once that's sort of driving this. Uh, there were reports as well. I know people have been documenting 
cases of people putting Apple AirTags or other kind of tracking devices in vehicle vehicles and actually seeing them uh, stolen, able to track where they're going, but still not being able to do anything about it, still other than knowing where your vehicle was taken, uh, not really being able uh, to do anything else. What else do you think could be done as far as combating this? Um, well, I think uh, one of the first things is, is to really increase the... Uh, um, are people, the number of people at the ports, you know, targeting searches um, on the containers that are leaving and, uh, and then just effective anti-theft measures that, uh, through the manufacturers of the vehicles, like um, increase those anti-theft measures uh, up to today's standards. Um, and then just being able to share information um, across uh, partnerships uh, that are involved in this uh, sort of industry, that all those things would really be effective in helping. Um, you know, the trackers that people put in their vehicles are effective in, in you know, they're not effective in uh, stopping the theft. They're effective in maybe tracking the vehicle down after the theft, um, which is good. But we really want to concentrate on, on theft prevention and, and stopping that theft from actually happening. I'm not sure if the report goes into this level of detail, but is it new vehicles or, or vehicles of a certain year and newer or certain um, brands, certain makes of vehicles that are targeted the most? Yes, um, it is the newer vehicles because, of course, those are more sought after and, of course, more more, more valuable. So the bad actors out there, you know, it, it's uh, more worth their time to steal a vehicle that uh, has a higher value on it because the Canadian vehicles, in our market um, and and the markets uh, in the east, in Africa and the Middle East, uh, the value is equal or sometimes even higher in those other markets and uh, versus our Canadian market. What advice do you give to people then? And again, th this report, the study that Equite has put out says that more than 80% of Canadians say that the rise in auto theft makes them concerned, uh, especially about crime in their community. What advice, uh, when you talk about anti-theft, what other mm -hmm. advice do you give people as far as trying to, to stop from having your vehicle stolen? Yeah, well, a, a lot of the theft now is just, it's very sophisticated, right? They're not using a, a screwdriver and hammer to steal your vehicle anymore. They show up with a laptop and, and they uh, get into the electrical system of the vehicle. So if you have like those old school sort of anti-theft devices, the steering wheel lock are actually still really effective because they're a visual deterrent. So if they show up with a laptop and they see a, a steering wheel lock, well, that's going to be something they might not be able to deal with and we'll just maybe move on to a different vehicle. So those sort of things, like those, any sort of layer of security that you can put, if you're able to park inside a garage or something like that, of course, that's very, that's, uh, that'll help immensely as well. Um, you know, protect your, uh, obviously lock your vehicle, but also protect your key fobs because uh, your, the key fobs in the newer vehicles um, send a signal and it's a proximity signal to the vehicle to let them know if they're close enough so that the door will unlock and the vehicle will start. But that's one of the things that the bad actors sort of target. They're able to increase that signal so the vehicle thinks that the key fob's in close pro proximity to the vehicle and, uh, and they're able to enter the vehicle and start it. So there's Faraday bags where you can place your key fobs in that um, stop that signal from uh, 
uh, being intercepted and uh, amplified. I had seen something that showed car thieves were actually using devices. And if you are, and, and I don't know if this was just fear mongering, but it said that if you hang your keys by your front door, which a lot of people do, that if the fob is within reach, thieves can actually use a device to kind of copy the fob or to, to take the information from it. Is that happening? Uh, well, there's some truth to what you're saying. What it is, is they just amplify the signal, like I talked about. So the, there's a signal between the key fob and the uh, the vehicle. Um, but the vehicle doesn't recognize that until that key fob is in close enough proximity. So you have it in your pocket, you're right beside the door. That's close enough. The door, when you pull on the door handle, it'll unlock and open. And same with the push button start. It has to be close enough to that button. So when you push it, um, the vehicle will start. So what, what they do is they have an antenna, a large antenna that they'll hold outside your front door in the middle of the night, hoping that it's close enough to your key fob so that it can amplify that signal to trick the vehicle into thinking that the key fob is present. It doesn't take any of the information off the key fob, but it does sort of um, trick the vehicle into thinking the key fob is present. And then they are able, once they drive the vehicle away, they are able to um, make a, a, an additional key to the vehicle. It's uh, frightening uh, the, the, what they can do and uh, how many cars and vehicles are being uh, stolen. Sid Kingma, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for taking the time. Great. Thanks for having me, Jill, and anytime. Some new information has been released. This comes through the Canadian Taxpayers Federation getting some government records showing how much a three-day cabinet retreat to Prince Edward Island cost taxpayers last summer. And joining me to talk more about these numbers is Franco Terrazano with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, thank you so much for taking some time. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on this afternoon. So this is a three-day cabinet retreat. People might remember hearing about it. What did you ask for as far as what uh, government records have you now been able to take a look at? So all of this came through an order paper question. Essentially, a member of parliament is able to ask the government for certain types of records on how they spend money. We got our hands on it, and it's quite astonishing. A three-day cabinet retreat last summer ended up costing taxpayers 485000 bucks, Folks, almost half a million dollars for a three-day minister's retreat in Charlottetown. That's the bill to you, dear taxpayer, I'm sorry to say. And, you know, another part of this whole context is, is this was one of the uh, cabinet retreats that was supposed to be focused on affordability. On affordability, right? Mm-hmm. So think of just how tone-deaf and really unacceptable this is where you do have Canadians who are struggling with rising mortgage payments, Canadians that are worried about just their fuel bill to take their kids to hockey practice, and of course Canadians just worried about the price of hamburger meat right now, all while our leaders in government, the Prime Minister and his ministers, ended up racking up a bill that was close to $500,000 over a three-day getaway. It seems like a pretty hefty price for a long weekend. Uh, Do the numbers, are they broken down as to what they actually spent that money on? Oh, yeah, they sure are. So there was over $100,000 in hotel bills. Uh, there was about twenty two k in meals and incidentals and, and more than fifty k on, like, general catering bills. Now, we don't know how many people were there. Uh, obviously, ministers were there. There's going to be other staffers, probably other government employees that were there. I don't know. Uh, but this is quite a huge tap. 
right? This is a massive tab. And also, like, I'm in downtown Ottawa right now, right by Parliament Hill. There's many different office buildings in the national capital region. So I think taxpayers have every reason to be like, okay, I understand that ministers are going to meet before a session of the House of Commons begins. But, like, why can't you just do this in Ottawa, in the national capital region, where you got staffers already, you got government employees already, and you, that's where the ministers are going to be doing the bulk of the work in the session anyway. Right. How, why do you have to go to a waterfront hotel in Charlottetown and take the time and do, and do things there and have a retreat? Well, that's exactly it. And look, another thing here, too, is like we hear all the time in press conferences, in whatever type of communications from this government, saying they're working hard to make life more affordable for Canadians. But all we see are these expensive bills of them crisscrossing the country, talking to each other, while they're not actually doing anything substantially to make life more affordable for Canadians and taxpayers more specifically. Let me give you an example, right? The Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we are firmly on the record calling for the government to scrap the carbon tax. Now, Trudeau may never be willing to do that, but he could at least not increase the carbon tax again on April 1. He could at least extend the same relief he gave predominantly to Atlantic Canadians and take the carbon tax off of everyone's home heating bill. He could at least make sure Bill C-234 passes, which would take the carbon tax off of all farm fuels used on Canadian farms, and he could stop his April 1 alcohol tax increase. So instead of, you know, wasting $500,000 on a three-day getaway, he could do the concrete little thing that would actually provide meaningful relief for Canadians who are struggling. Uh, Is it out of the ordinary? I know we tend to focus on the federal government, the current government, given the retreats and the money spent, whether it's the taxpayer dollars or in some cases the the private money of the prime minister spent. But have previous governments also been known to take these expensive three-day trips? I honestly don't have that information in front of me. Look, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if other governments are also spending money I don't know to this extent, 500000 bucks over three days. I don't know. But I'm sure there's other governments, of course, that are having ministers retreat. But that doesn't take any blame off of this current government that's in power right now for doing what they did, for, for spending almost $500,000 on a three-day retreat when they could very well have a type of meeting like this in the national capital region. I mean, even if they weren't going to do this in Ottawa, it's just outrageous to me that they couldn't figure out a way to do a meeting with the what 40 or 50 or so ministers without it costing $500,000 like I just don't think that's too much to ask well and looking at the results of this as well and seeing in the National Post as well as what you've been able to take from these numbers that they talked a lot about this was to come up with ways to tackle uh, to make things more affordable housing but Nothing came of this retreat. It's not like there have been announcements or any kind of plan or template to deal with it. Well, there was no new specific announcements from this actual cabinet retreat, right? And, and, and look, like, I understand that a government has a lot of considerations to make. I understand that there's uh, so many complexities in an economy, right? I understand that. But what I don't understand is, is two things. Number one, how they either just can't seem to understand the struggles that ordinary Canadians are going through or that they just don't seem to care. I don't know which one's worse. But the second thing is that why aren't they just doing the, such the easiest stuff 
that would make life more affordable. You know, I already kind of mentioned this, right? Don't raise the carbon tax on April 1. Don't raise the alcohol tax on April 1. Make sure the carbon tax is removed from farm fuels, a piece of legislation that has already essentially been passed by the House of Commons twice. Why isn't that law yet? So instead of spending just a bucket of cash from the taxpayer money pot that this government really doesn't have when it's a trillion dollars in debt, instead of doing that, why not just take the concrete actions that they can do right now to make life more affordable for Canadians? This retreat as well, this one happening in the summer in Charlottetown, it, it wasn't that long before this, was it, that the government was on another retreat, I think closer to where I am in the, the Vancouver area. So, I, I mean, it does seem like they, they are having these retreats but and, and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, but for what, for what payoff? Well, well, that's the thing, right? For, what are we getting out of all this? And, and you're right. I'm glad you brought that because the Trudeau government also had an anti-inflation summit in Vancouver uh, about a year before the one that we're talking about right now, where they spent like 275000 bucks. Uh, you may remember this because Trudeau and his ministers, they dropped tens of thousands of dollars at a cafe serving up an 88 buck millionaire's cut steak and lobster plate, right? So that one made the news. But, it, but it's not just these cabinet retreats. Like, it's, it's, it's just um, entitlement throughout uh, Trudeau's government and his ministers and also just some leaders in the government as well. There's another example of Trudeau dropping $61,000 on hotel rooms in Manhattan during a two-day anti-poverty summit. There was, of course, the expense where Trudeau stayed in a $6,000 per night hotel room during the Queen's funeral you have the Governor General who spent $71,000 on limo services in Iceland when her hotel was like a 10-minute walk away from the main conference center. Uh, the Governor General spent almost $100,000 on airplane food during a week-long trip to the Middle East. Uh, you, you almost just can't even make this stuff up, right? And at the end of the day, I think Canadians have every reason to say enough is enough with this type of spending, especially when you consider the hard times that families are going through, especially when you consider the fact that taxes are going up, especially when you consider the fact that the government is running like a $40 billion deficit, the debt is at a trillion dollars. Next year, interest charges on the debt are going to surpass health care transfers to the provinces, right? So when you consider the struggles Canadians are going through, when you consider the struggles that are our nation's finances, when you consider the fact that taxes are going up, uh, I mean, enough is enough already. It does seem like a lot. And I also, uh, I, I thought it was uh, interesting, or I suppose you just kind of have to heavily sigh in that, uh, I know with the National Post reporting on this as well, saying that that $50,000, the banquet expense, said that there weren't any details provided from the Privy Council office, but they were able to provide details that it was a banquet charge for general catering. So I don't know if that makes people feel better. I doubt that it does, <laughs> that I don't the catering so. bill alone was $50,000. Well, you know what? A couple things there. Shout, shout out to the National Post for also going uh, above and beyond and finding some online expenses that go with this. And you know what? Here's a tactic that the government uses, and it just drives me up the wall, to say the least. You know, they delay responses to media outlets. And that could be a tactic just to slow down the news cycle, to kind of keep things confusing, right? So there was no reason that a government couldn't get back to a media outlet and confirm this uh, hours and hours before the PCO finally did. But to your original point, 
I, I don't think that spending 50K on general catering costs over three days and racking up a total bill that almost reaches $500,000 for those three days, I don't think that's going to leave Canadians feeling any better. Probably not. Franco, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for your time once again. Hey, thank you for having me on today. Time to take a closer look at what is happening with the royal family. We now know Prince Harry has arrived at his father, King Charles III's London residence. He arrived earlier today. Well, with the time difference, this was being re- reported by British media. A day after it was announced the king has cancer, and they have not announced the type of cancer, but did say that it has been caught early. So what does all of this mean? Edward Wang is joining us now, royal commentator who has studied and followed the royal family and monarchies around the world. He also traveled to London for the Cambridge wedding in 2011, as well as the Platinum Jubilee. Edward, thank you so much for taking some time once again. Thank you so much for having me. When you watch the family so closely and and see how things have been uh, between Prince Harry and his father, we got this announcement that King Charles is getting treatment for some type of cancer. What does it say to you that Prince Harry has gone there? Well, I, I think, you know, we have to remember at the end of the day that this is still very much a family. And there's a father and a son who do care about each other and love each other very much, notwithstanding that there has been some difficulties in the relationship. So as any son would, when their father uh, is known to have a serious medical condition, will want to make sure that they can see them at least in person. Now, in terms of the timing, I understand a lot of people might think, okay, Prince Harry is suddenly flying to the United Kingdom. This must be something urgent. But we have to be cognizant of his upcoming schedule as well. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex are scheduled to come to Vancouver next week ahead of the one-year Um, start time of the Invictus Games that Vancouver is hosting next year. Um, So, you know, between going to the UK in terms of timing, uh, if he didn't go to the UK now, then it would be almost a week later before he can actually go to the UK. So I think in terms of timing and optics, it was sooner rather than later from his perspective. Now, he already arrived in London, and my understanding is he spent about... 30 to 45 minutes with the king at Clarence House. However, the king has already left London and has gone to recuperate at the Sandraham estate in Norfolk. Hmm. Uh, interesting when you when you point out that uh, as far as timing and like you said, even with somebody, uh, if, if they have had a bit of a, a tumultuous relationship, they are still father and son and they are still f- uh, part of this family. Uh, do you do you think and I, on the one hand, because the, the, the type of cancer has not the form of cancer has not been released, that's leading to a lot of speculation. But. Also, this is somebody who is dealing with a health issue and is is allowed to have privacy as well. But do you think that the that they be, because they haven't released the form of cancer, is it getting more attention? People speculating on on how how what what degree it is or what he might be dealing with. I think so, and I think we have to really look at the developments within how much disclosure the royal family has been giving us, right? So if we look at two generations ago, um, King George VI, the current king's grandfather, wasn't even told by his own doctors that he had cancer. 
uh, and his family was not made aware, and the public was not made aware that King George VI was dying from lung cancer. Uh, as fast forward to the last reign, towards the end of Queen Elizabeth's life in 2022, now there were a lot of speculation as to what was hurting uh, the late queen. Now, all that was disclosed to us was that she was having periodic mobility issues. Uh, but there was a lot of speculation that was there bone cancer, was there blood cancer? Um, you know, the official reason on Queen Elizabeth's death certificate was just old age because apparently she was suffering from multiple conditions. Now, I think the king has been very brave and has been very forward thinking in terms of disclosing uh, medical conditions that could encourage other people to start to take a step back and think about themselves. Uh, even at my workplace, a number of our colleagues have been thinking, okay, when was the last time we went in for our physical? And when did we see our, la- uh, our doctor last? And uh, myself, I booked an appointment to, for a health assessment because I haven't seen my own family doctor, doctor in about five years. <laughs> so, you know, hmm. but, but we, we do still have to respect that, you know, he is the head of state. Of, 14, of the United Kingdom and 14 other countries around the world, as well as head of the Commonwealth, and has accorded uh, you know, assembl- uh, some semblance of privacy as to how much she wants to disclose to us. For sure, for sure. But, but I think there are still the questions as well, that here we are, and I suppose too, because we all kind of grew up and and were used to, to seeing Queen Elizabeth and, and what a long reign she had, that here we are with King Charles, less than about a year and a half, I think, into his being king. Uh, here we are, we know he's 75 years old and, and now dealing with some form of cancer certainly leads to a lot of questions as to, to how things will go forward as far as his public engagements and and keeping up with what is an extremely busy routine and schedule. And I think that's going to be the main problem for the king is because he knows he had to hit the ground running because of his long apprenticeship and the fact that he wanted to have a strong impact in his reign. And he's a workaholic. He does not like to slow down. And I think this is where Queen Camilla will have uh, you know, some, a great deal to do in, tel- in helping the king slow things down and making sure that he actually takes time for himself to recuperate and to rest and to battle this cancer. Um, I would also note that you know, his late grandmother, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, lived to the age of 101, but not a lot of people knew that she had cancer twice. And this was something I didn't realize until I was reading her official biography, that she had cancer, I think, in the 80s and, and once in the 70s. And, and this, it was not well publicized, but she still lived for a good two, three decades after that. Hmm. And I suppose, too, because this is coming at the, the same time that, that people who have been paying attention and watching what's happening with the royal family will know that this diagnosis comes after people found out that Kate, the Princess of Wales, is also recovering from an abdominal surgery. She was in the hospital for about two weeks, which, as many people have pointed out, that's a, quite a long time to be in the hospital and also taking a break from royal duties. Is that bringing more attention to the royal family that two of the high-profile members are now recovering and dealing with health issues? 
I, I definitely think so. Towards the end of the last reign, I think a lot of people were thinking, well, or talking about the concept of a slimmed down royal family. Now, the royal family has definitely slimmed down with, you know, the passing of the late Prince Philip and the late Queen Elizabeth, you know, the stepping aside of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, as well as the Duke of York. And we have to look at, the, if you look at the overall number of working members of the royal family, there are only two under the age of 50, and that is the, that are the Prince and Princess of Wales. The other working members of the royal family are uh, in their 70s, uh, two in their 80s, uh, and the rest in their 60s. And, and, and so when you have uh, two leading members of the royal family uh, taking months off in order to deal with the health issues, I think this shines a great light to this. And I think, and people are, are obviously cognizant and thinking about the future. Now, we've just had a change in reign. So all of this is very fresh. People are aware of what happens when there is a change in reign. And, and so it's very, it's very difficult for people to think, oh my God, we have to go through this entire process again, uh, or at least thinking about the possibility that that could happen. Right. Do you think, too, that even with the amount of information that has been released and, like you said, very different from when uh, if you go back to the days of King George VI and the secrecy around that, is it because also the role of the royal family has changed in that this is not a monarchy with with real power right now? It's more of a a family that that is a figurehead. Yes, they, they do a lot of service and they're in that role, but it's not as though those health concerns need to be kept secret for fear that they will look weakened or that their power will be in question? Well, I I think the role of the royal family has changed, or at least their relationship with their peoples have changed. So if you look at, you know, in the 1950s, looking at the illness of King George VI, you know, the relationship between the people and their monarchy was deference. People deferred to them. They were uh, you know, of a, a higher level of individuals, and we should not be, you know, questioning what their health aspects are. But nowadays, I think the royal family, they take on a leadership role in being role models. And I think this is why the king should be applauded for being so open as much as he can, or as much as he's willing with respect to his own medical conditions. I think when it was announced that he was uh, experiencing an enlarged prostate, uh, you know, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom announced that the uh, website hits on prostate issues jumped through the roof. And, and this can definitely help a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, kick them into gear into looking after themselves. So I think this is something that really needs to be commended for the new role that the royal family is embracing in 2024. Edward Wang, great to chat with you again. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.